Please turn with me in your Bibles to our sermon text this morning, Psalm 121, page 516, if you've got one of the blue Bibles and the chairs. We're going to return, Lord willing, next week to our study in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. Uh, today, however, we're going to uh, study Psalm 121 as we are on the brink of a new year. Good psalm to think about. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Let us pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word for this passage that is before us. We thank you that it, because it is your word, it is truth itself, it is without error. We thank you, O oh God, that it is the standard, the measure of all things. Father, as we come to your word, we do not come to be critical of it or to sit in judgment over it or to assess it, whether or not we will accept it, but we come to submit to it. We come to hear from you. We come to have our souls fed. We come to be measured by it. Father, instruct us and encourage us where necessary. Convict us and bring us along, Lord, into a closer walk with you, to a deeper knowledge of our Lord Jesus, uh, to grow in grace and knowledge of him. And we ask that in his name. Amen. Here we are, the very last day of 2006. This time last year, we were wondering what the year would hold. Well, now you know. Except for the last few dwindling hours of today, 2006 is a known quantity. We know what happened in the world. We know what happened in our families, in our lives, at work. We know what has happened in our church. It's a known quantity. Well, now we stand on the doorstep of 2007, and the Lord only knows what the year holds in store for us. For some of you, 2007 will be a rather ordinary year, not anything particularly great happening, not anything particularly bad happening. For others of you, 2007 may well be the banner year of your life so far or a year in which maybe some pretty great and memorable things happen, the birth of a child, for example. For some of you, 2007 may be the most painful year of your life. We simply don't know. But God does. And by this day next year, we also will know. Well, as we journey into the unknown that is the year 2007, in some ways we're like those travelers, like those pilgrims who wrote, 
who sang, who chanted, who meditated on psalms like the one that is here before us, Psalm 121. You'll notice in your Bibles that there's a little heading uh, here in mind. There's a dark heading above it, but below that there's in small caps just the words, A Song of Ascents. Well, you will find that over several psalms, beginning with 120 and going all the way over to Psalm 134. The psalms or songs of ascents. This is a category out of the, the whole book of psalms, a category of psalms that were used, that were known for, that described the travels that the Israelites would experience as they made their way to Jerusalem, as they went up to Jerusalem to attend the various feasts and festivals. Now, the uh, journey to Jerusalem involved going up, uh, literally, because Jerusalem was, was relatively high in elevation, and so pretty much from any direction, in, in, a, in, in terms of elevation, you were going up to Jerusalem. But uh, more significantly than that, you were going up to Jerusalem because of, in, in a figurative sense, because of the spiritual significance of Jerusalem and the spiritual importance of the feasts, the events that would be taking place there. And so these pilgrimages involved traveling uh, to, to the high point of Jerusalem in more ways than one. It was not always an easy journey. People, of course, could not just uh, get on the train or get in their car or hop on a plane and, and get to Jerusalem. They would uh, often and usually walk. Uh, some might ride on the back of an animal. But it was not an easy journey, and in fact, sometimes it could be a dangerous journey. Bandits were not uncommon. An overnight uh, trip meant, often meant sleeping under the open sky at night. And so the journey could have its dangers as well. Setting out on a pilgrimage was, in fact, to, uh, to face the unknown. Now, the writer of this Song of Ascent, Psalm 121, faced the unknown, faced the fear that it represented by reflecting on the character of God. And as we set out on the journey that is 2007, uh, we can certainly do no better than to follow his example. What was it that encouraged, that comforted in the face of the unknown. Well, he turns to the character of God, begins to reflect on the nature of God, the being of God, and certainly we can do no better than that. In fact, you and I can face an unknown year in peace by remembering who God is. And the psalmist here thinks particularly about four realities, four realities having to do with God. In the first place, he's comforted, he's encouraged by the power of God, as he reflects on the power of God. Look at verses 1 and 2. I lift up my eyes to the hills, and the King James says, from whence cometh my help. Sounds a lot like a statement, doesn't it? And that has confused many people because it's not a statement. It's a question. And the ESV renders it here in, such a, in other modern translations in such a way that make it plain that the writer of the psalm isn't saying, I look out to the hills from which my help comes. Not at all. In fact, just the opposite. 
I look at the hills and my heart is gripped with fear because of the dangers that they hold. That's the point when he says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. I'm traveling, getting into the hill country, making our way to Jerusalem. Got my children with me. And these hills are known to hold and hide bandits, robbers, thieves, murderers who will kill me and kill my family to take the money that we have, to take our possessions away from us. You see, the hills represent not comfort here, but danger. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? Who will help me? Who will protect me? Who will watch over me as I make my way on this journey, never knowing quite what's around the next bend in this mountain path? This fear is the hills. Well, his help, he says in verse 2, is the Lord. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Now, a couple of things here. As he mentions, his help comes from the Lord. Uh, one, of course, acknowledging that the Lord is willing to help, that the Lord is mindful of him, that the Lord is concerned about his well-being. His help comes from the Lord. But more than that, you'll notice a couple of things. One, he uses here the covenant name of God. My help comes from Yahweh, the Lord. In, in our English versions here, it's rendered in small caps, uh, which is a way of distinguishing two different words in Hebrew that are typically translated Lord in our English Bibles. One is the word Yahweh. There's four letters, the tetragrammaton, it's sometimes called, the name of God that was the name he revealed to his people. It's sometimes called his covenant name. Exodus 3, Moses says, Whom shall I say sent me? Uh, Tell them I am. Yah, Yahweh. Tell them I am has sent you. This covenant name, a special name by which God revealed himself to his people. The other name is the word Adonai, which means something like Lord or Master. Uh, And that one typically is translated in our English Bibles by the word Lord also, although not in small caps. The small caps indicate this is Yahweh, not Adonai. By the way, the term Jehovah, the name Jehovah for God, was something of an amalgamation of the four consonants, the tetragrammaton of Yahweh, with the vowels for Adonai. So it's actually a hybrid word that... uh, and is even reflected in our English Bibles, an effort not to say the name of God on the part of the Jews for fear of misusing, taking the name of God in vain. And so they would not even say it. They would substitute a word for it. Uh, And it's interesting that we do that in our English Bibles as well. However, be that as it may, he refers here to the covenant God. My help is in the name of my covenant Lord. Not just God. Not just I hope God out there helps me, I hope that he will be my help, but my help is in the name of the Lord God who has made a covenant with his people, that he will be our God, that we will be his people. You see, this is not just some abstract uh, turning to some God who is out there hoping he will help. This is the part of, uh, rather on the part of someone who knows the Lord who is part of the covenant people of God. In in modern terms, in New Testament terms, we'd say this was a Christian. This was someone who was in relationship with God through Jesus Christ, someone who knows the Lord, not someone who it suddenly dawns on them, maybe they should call out to God in case he's out there and hope that he'll help. 
This is someone who knows the Lord. This is someone who is in covenant relationship with God. This is someone, as we say in New Testament terms, who has believed in Christ and is in relationship with God through that. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And that's important. God is the creator, and that's why we say here his power. He reflects on the power of God, God who has redeemed him, the God who not only redeems him, but is the the maker and sustainer of all things. This is the God with whom he has to do, the God who brought the universe into being out of nothing by merely speaking the word. Let there be light. There was light. You see, that's the God in whom he trusts, a God with whom he is in personal relationship, a God whom he recognizes is the creator God and the sovereign God who rules over all things. By the way, that's a a refrain uh, throughout Scripture. Uh, He refers here to the God who created. And you find that any number of places in Scripture. I'll give you just a few references out of the Psalms. Psalm 124, another Psalm of Ascent, 124 verse 8, Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Psalm 115, verse 15, may you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. Of course, Psalm 8, verse 3, when I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and have crowned him with glory and honor. As he reflects on on the creation and the God who brought this magnificent creation to the being, he says, who am I that you should pay attention to me? And yet you do. We dare not lose to Darwinism or evolution, every thought, uh, the, the strong doctrine of the fact that God created and therefore rules over and sustains the heavens and the earth. He created. He made the heavens and the earth. And that's a source of comfort to this pilgrim. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Calvin would point out he's looking at the wrong things. Looking to the hills. And the fact is that's often where we come down to. We focus our eyes on the problem. We focus our eyes on the thing that frightens us. We focus our eyes on the thing that we perceive as a threat rather than fixing our eyes on Jesus, rather than focusing our gaze on our Lord, our covenant God, who made heaven and earth. It's like Peter when he got out of the boat and Jesus uh, called him out. He actually was walking on the water, coming to Jesus, but then he took his eyes off Jesus. He started looking at the waves, and what happened? Well, he started to go down. He started to sink. Well, that's what happens here. The pilgrim starts to look at the hills and loses sight of God. He becomes afraid. When you and I look at our lives, when we look at next year, next month, tomorrow, and look at the problems, look at the things that could happen, look at the things we're afraid of, we become afraid. But you see, the thing that we need to do is ask the question, from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth, and refocus our gaze on God. Well, that's the first Reality about God that is a comfort to him facing the unknown. Second one that he mentions here is God's vigilance. Look at verses 3 and 4. God's vigilance. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. 
So he thinks about God, God the creator of heaven and earth. He might think, well, surely God has better things to do as he steers galaxies through the cosmos than worry about the little problems and trials and afflictions I have going on in my life. Not so. He will not let your foot be moved. Yes, God may steer the galaxies, but God is concerned that your foot does not slip and you fall down. That's detail. And that's a thing that we also find through Scripture, the idea of our feet being secure. He set my feet on a rock, on a firm place. And the idea also of our feet slipping or stumbling or falling. In fact, one of the most famous sermons ever preached, Jonathan Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, was preached from the text Deuteronomy 32, verse 35. In fact, just a phrase out of that verse, In due time their foot shall slip. And he's referring there to the wicked, to those who are opposed to God, And he's saying that though they seem strong, though they seem secure, their feet are actually in a precarious place. And just like that, their foot could slide and they fall with a crash. Have you ever fallen? Have you ever had that happen? I think the worst time I ever fell, I ever slipped and fell, I was leaving the bookstore at Westminster Theological Seminary. I worked there on Monday nights. It was the only night it was open. And it was cold and there was ice on the ground. It was Philadelphia. And I remember walking out to my car, and the next thing I knew, before I even knew what happened, I was on the ground on my back, and I hurt. I had slipped. My, my feet had hit the unseen ice, and before I even processed what was happening, I was lying on my back, and I was hurting. I'd fallen hard on the ice. Well, stunned, but able to get up and keep going. But it wasn't a pleasant experience. Part of it was the pain, and part of it was just the absolute shock. The idea of our feet slipping suddenly was the idea that Edwards played upon in that sermon so powerfully. Other places we find, for example, in Psalms, Psalm 66, another reference, verses 8 and 9. Bless our God, O peoples, let the sound of his praise be heard, who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. In other words, they're kind of a metaphor for death. The idea of the feet slipping. He's kept us alive. He hasn't let our feet slip. Uh, Even over in Proverbs, we find this same picture of the feet slipping suddenly. Proverbs 3, verse 23. Then you will walk on your way securely, and your foot will not stumble. And then again in verse 26. For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. So whether it's the idea of slipping or stumbling or being caught and falling, it's a picture of calamity. It's a picture of something bad happening. And that's what we find here. God will, he may rule over the cosmos, but he will not let your foot be moved. Why not? Because God is not surprised. Because God is ever vigilant, ever watchful. I love the the threefold emphasis here that God doesn't doze off. He who keeps you will not slumber. By the way, that's the first instance of a word that occurs an amazing number of times in such a short psalm, the word keep. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. He doesn't doze off. You know, a light 
slumber. I often get those on a Sunday afternoon. I start reading, and the next thing I know, I'm slumbering, and sometimes I'm absolutely out asleep. Perhaps you do that too. But God doesn't do that. God doesn't doze off. God is not asleep at the switch. You see, when things happen, calamities, tragedies, things that are painful, things that hurt, whether it's on a nationwide scale, such as the terrorist attacks on 9-11, or whether it's something that happens in our lives that don't make the headlines of the newspapers and yet cause us great pain, we can never cry out and say, where was God? Where was God on 9-11? Where was God when this happened? Where was God when that happened? You know where God was? He was exactly where he always is, on the throne of heaven, ruling over heavens and the earth and your life. God doesn't fall asleep. God isn't caught off guard. God isn't watching one side of the earth while the other falls into chaos. He doesn't doze off. He doesn't miss anything. He sees. He knows. He is aware of everything going on all at once, all the time. Now that could lead us to other psalms saying such knowledge is too wonderful for me. How can we possibly grasp this? But we'll leave those for another day. But the point is here that the psalmist is comforted by the vigilance of God, knowing that he's not so busy, so preoccupied elsewhere, knowing that he hasn't fallen asleep, that he's failed to pay attention to me and what's going on in my life. Elijah ridiculed the prophets of Baal, ridiculed Baal as they were trying to call, get Baal to send down fire from heaven. And uh, after they'd been going and going and nothing had happened, nothing was happening, Elijah said, you know, maybe, maybe he's out. You know, the deity is out, you know, hung outside, closed for the day. Uh, maybe he's, and one of the things he says is maybe he's fallen asleep. Maybe he dozed off. Well, the God of Israel doesn't sleep. Our covenant Lord does not doze off, is not asleep at the switch. So the vigilance of God, the power of God, vigilance of God. Third thing that comforts him as he faces the unknown is the presence of God. Look at verses 5 and 6. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord is your keeper. There's that word again. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The presence of God. The Lord is as close to you as your right hand. He is with you. He is there for you to protect you. He keeps you. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. I think that's a poetic picture. We could take it literally and say, well, sunstroke or, or something like that, the heat of the day. Uh, or the moon by night, but I think the point here is day or night, it doesn't matter, God is still beside you. The dangers that come in the day, the dangers that come in the night, whatever they might be, the Lord is your shade. He is your protection. He is your cover, and he is as close to you as your right hand. He is by your side. He's got your back, in other words. That's, that's what the psalmist is saying here. The presence of God with us. Of course, this isn't the only psalm to bring that up. Psalm 139 absolutely celebrates the presence of God. Psalm 139, verse 5. David writes, You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge here is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. 
I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. God is present with his people. There's a sense in which that's one of the major themes, and and, in one sense the major theme of the entire scripture, is the presence of God with his people to protect them, deliver them, ultimately to save them. All the way back from the the, the tabernacle, well, even before that, when God came to Abraham, uh, but then the tabernacle with this sacrificial system set up, And the glory, the presence of God filling it, Exodus chapter 40, God in the midst of his people, his presence uh, in that relationship mediated by the offering of sacrifices, it's pointed forward to Christ, to, um, we just celebrated Christmas, we call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us, God in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity, uh, coming and dwelling and living among us, to the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, I won't leave you alone. I will send a comforter. I will send a counselor to be with you. I will not leave you as orphans. And in Acts chapter 2, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost was Christ, in a sense, returning to be with his people. Not that Christ is the Holy Spirit. We're not modalists here. The Father becomes the Son, becomes the Spirit. Ancient heresy. Stay away from it. But rather, the presence of God with his people was now by the Holy Spirit. The disciples didn't want to see Jesus go. They didn't want to see him leave. They were troubled by the thought that in the flesh he would not be with them. But Jesus says to them, well, God isn't abandoning you. God will be with you now, within you, by means of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And we enjoy that now. We have God with us by the Holy Spirit, which might want to argue the point, but in reality is even better than having Jesus physically present here on earth. Because in a physical body, he is limited by the same difficulty of our physical bodies, and that is he's limited to one place at a time. The Holy Spirit is not. But there's more. Recently was reading uh, in Revelation chapter 21, uh, where we read where John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now listen to this. And I heard a voice, a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. You see, from that tabernacle in the wilderness to the new heavens and the new earth and the presence of God with us. That's the theme of the Bible. Now, how can a holy God be present with a sinful people? Well, there must be atonement made, propitiation made for sins. Justice, God's justice, must be satisfied. He can't ignore our sins. And so in Christ, peace and righteousness kiss. God's justice is satisfied. His mercy and grace are so fully expressed that a holy God can dwell in the midst of a sinful yet redeemed people and being redeemed, being sanctified more and more like Christ until we're glorified and our sin is gone for good. You see, the presence of God was a comfort to him. 
The Lord is the shade on is your shade on your right hand. When John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, was dying, uh, he had a great many friends, strong Christian friends, of course, who came to visit him and uh, understandably anxious to encourage him with the promises uh, of God, promises of salvation and so forth. At one point, however, Wesley, uh, in his deathbed, raised himself up and in a strong voice, with energy, said to them, yes, all these promises are true, but best of all, God is with us. You face a new year, face the unknown. Do you consciously think about the fact that God is present? God is with you. He does not leave you. He does not abandon you. Now, it's true. At times we may have a greater sense or awareness or consciousness that God is with us. At times we may wonder, but we don't need to wonder because we have the word of God in Scripture that he is with us. He will not leave us. He will not abandon us. He will not forsake us. Facing the unknown. Encouraged by the power of God, the vigilance of God, the presence of God, and then last, the protection of God. In a sense in which all of his protection is implicit in everything we've been talking about, but Psalm seven, or, or verses 7 and 8 uh, make that plain. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Now here we have the last three uh, instances of the word keep in, in this psalm Uh, and they speak here of the lord's protection he will keep you from all evil he will keep your life he will keep you in the ins and outs the ups and downs the comings and goings of life they said wait a minute if this is true why do children die children of christians this is true why do faithful christian elders get cancer or if this is true why do missionaries suffer such difficulties and setbacks sometimes? If this is true, why are Christians killed for their faith? It says here, you know, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. It doesn't say that God will keep you from every affliction you might encounter in this fallen world. It doesn't say that God will protect you from being Killed because you're a Christian. It doesn't say that Christians' children, Christians themselves, won't get sick or suffer injury or other difficulties like other people in this fallen world. The point here is the long-range perspective. The point is your salvation. The point is that there is nothing that will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. The point here is that you will not be in hell, you'll be in heaven if you are in Christ Jesus. That's what he's saying here. You see, we take such a short-term view. We live for this life. Does this mean I won't suffer financial setbacks? Does this mean I won't suffer the evil of illness or injury or rejection? No. We live in a fallen world. And to say otherwise is to be delusional. You and I will suffer some of the worst difficulties a person could suffer in this world. Some of us, not all of us, at one time or another, yes, because it's a broken, fallen world. It's not yet reached the end of God's restoring, redeeming plan. But the fact is you and I in Christ Jesus will not be lost. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And that's what the psalmist here is saying. 
the Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Now, we also do have to say that I think this promise applies to this life. I do think that God protects his people and in many ways spares them calamities that others might endure. However, God also does lead us into trials to test us, to shape us, to knock away sin from our lives, to make us more into the image of Christ. But we do need to take the long-range view. Ultimately, in the face of death, in the face of hell, you and I are safe. You and I are secure. And that does affect this life. I love the way Sinclair Ferguson, in his book Deserted by God, puts it. He says, the root of all fears is the fear of death. Deal with that fear. And all other fears are thereby weakened. Or to turn it around, if you and I know that our ultimate destination is the new heavens, the new earth, or a place where righteousness dwells, a place where God himself is present with us, then we can hang on and endure whatever we might have to endure in this fallen world because we have hope. We have the hope of glory. We have the hope of the presence of God. We have the hope of our full and complete salvation in Christ. Well, like the pilgrims who made their way to Jerusalem facing the unknown, we too are embarking on a journey, a journey called 2007. Whatever else the year may hold, we know that God is there. And all these things that we've spoken of here, his power, his vigilance, his presence, his protection, are fulfilled or secured for us in Christ. His power in Christ's death and resurrection his vigilance in Christ's constant shepherding care of us, his presence and that God's given us the Holy Spirit and his protection as Christ will not allow anyone to snatch you from his hand. You see, a new year lies ahead of us, but a great God goes before us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are our God and we are your people. Lord, we know this life may be filled with trials and afflictions. We praise you also, Lord, for the times of ease and comfort that we enjoy. But Lord, we thank you that you are the God of our salvation, that you are the God who is with his people, that you are the God who, by your word, by your power, will bring us safely home. We thank you in Christ Jesus. Amen.